Hey, great seeing you guys uh, this weekend. I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. If this is your first time tuning in, uh, I'm so glad you are. Uh, I've been telling people this, little by little, people let me know they tune in on a consistent basis. If that's you, thank you. We love hanging out with you every week. And so love it if you emailed or sent us a letter, let us know that. And maybe even a little of your story, like who you are. But we just love the fact we get to hang out with you each week and tell others about it. Uh, but it's our privilege to be able to come into your home, work, uh, cafe, ride to work, whatever it might be, and uh, talk through God's Word with you. This weekend, uh, we have an exciting weekend here. Seven, eight people getting baptized. Love that. We celebrate new life in Christ. And then we're really, really, really looking forward to uh, Easter weekend, Good Friday. If you're able and you're in the area, uh, we have a noon 6 and 7.30 service. So three services on Good Friday, noon, 6, 7.30, and then Easter. Love for you. If you're able to come, be with us as we celebrate resurrection of Jesus. Right now, we're in this series, right? And you've been tracking. If you've been tracking with us, you know that this series we're calling God Is. A uh, very important conversation. In fact, one 20th century preacher said this, that what you and I think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us that he went on to say this, that no society, culture, and even church will ever rise above its idea of God. And I think that's true, that our minds go to a certain place. What he's saying is how you and I see God is important because it impacts how we live for or choose not to live for the God that we have in our mind. Some of us, like if you just think about God, just think about that for a minute. Just think, God, what comes to your mind? For some of you, my guess would be this, like uh, God is powerful, but, but not real personal. Like some of you think of him as like this higher power, right? So he's a powerful force, but you don't think of him as a God you relate to. He's more like uh, the genie in, in, in the lamp. Uh, he's got this phenomenal cosmic power that you want to be able to rub the lamp, call him out to help you overcome things, to help you fix things. But then when you're done, you put him back in, right? And so God is that way. Or for some of you, uh, maybe God, you grew up this way. Maybe grandma will tell you about this God. Maybe you grew up in a church like this. He's angry and he's distant. And he's like this, this virtual drill sergeant in the sky. And so for you, your main way of relating with God is stay out of his way fear, right? Guilt, shame, all those things are the way he's, he's like a power, but he's not personal to some of you. Now, the flip side though is true. Some of you, when you think of God, you think of him as personal, but at the expense of power, right? And so for some of us, we think of him kind of like this real empathetic divine being, and we strip away from him his power. He becomes impotent. Uh, we think of him, some of us think of him, like this kind of divine grandpa in the sky, right? Uh, he's really, really sweet and sentimental, but he's not very powerful. And what we do is we pay him honor and respect once in a while. Or others of us, the way that we strip away his power is he has no authority. So what he says is ever-changing, and we have the ability to change it. And so he's, uh, he's a, you know, I love the concept of God, but uh, he's kind of outdated. We got to kind of help him uh, get in with the times. That's why we're looking at this part of the Bible that we've been in. It's the most quoted part of the Bible by the Bible. And it's found in the Old Testament. Grab a Bible and turn there if you don't mind. Uh, Exodus 34, Moses asked God, describe yourself, show me your glory. And there's this whole story. You ought to read the context of it. God says, man, you can't handle that. Hides him in this cleft in the, in the rock, this cave. And uh, then God reveals himself in the passage we're looking at. 
And here's what he says. Passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the powerful, personal, profound name of God, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. He's emotionally invested, and he is invested to the point where he'll act on our behalf. Slow to anger. Looked at that last week. If you didn't get a chance to check that out, go back and check that out. God gets angry? Yeah. But his anger is always rooted in his holiness and his love. And then this week, abounding in love and faithfulness. I want to cover that this week, but I'd love for you to pray with me because, God, we need to hear from you. Such a rich, powerful phrase. And I pray, God, that you would help us to grab it in all of its essence, all of its meaning, so that we'd walk away changed today as as a result of encountering you in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first got here to Norton, our worship pastor, who preaches occasionally and uh, very energetic, jumped into the scene last week. Uh, but anyways, he he was only 16, 17, something like that, and uh, they would have worship band practice on Thursday nights, I believe. And I happened to be meeting with a mom and her young teenage gal on this particular Thursday night that he was going to be playing the drums on the worship band. And uh, he was sitting in his car eating some McDonald's when the mother arrived with her daughter. And when they came into my office, the daughter was beside herself, giddy, so excited. And I didn't know what was going on because we were going to actually deal with, I think, a very difficult situation. And so I looked at the mom and I'm like, what's going on? She just seems so excited, so like over the moon, like what is going on? What I didn't know was that Pastor Aiden, he wasn't a pastor then, he was 16-year-old Aiden, was out in his car eating some McDonald's, and she saw him, and she spotted him, and she was as sure as she could be that she had just seen Nick Jonas. You see, what you may not know is our worship pastor, Aiden, used to sing in a band called The Homecoming. There he is, right? Kind of looking cool and rad, right? And he did look an awful lot like who she confused him for, Nick Jonas, right? Uh, It's interesting. I don't know. Uh, Maybe this uh, will date you a little bit, but have you ever been a groupie? Uh, For some of you gals, maybe out there, it wouldn't have been Nick Jonas. Maybe you're old enough, Frank Sinatra, I don't know, Elvis Presley, the Beatles. Uh, Any of you remember Barry Manilow, right? Sean Cass, all those guys. Uh, Maybe it's the Backstreet Boys, One Direction. Uh, Maybe you're a a Bieber fever kind of guy, right? A gal, that's who you like. Here's how that works. Uh, when you become a groupie of these kind of peoples, those singers and artists, they stand up there and they sing their love songs. And you, as one of the members of their group, so to speak, that love them and follow them, you're as sure as shooting that they're singing those love songs to you. And you are sure that in some weird twist of fate, they would spot you in the crowd of yelling, screaming gals and pick you and spend the rest of their life with you as the eternal object of their dreamy love song. But instead, some of you out there would say, well, that didn't pan out, right? That didn't pan out. Elvis never spotted me. Barry Manning never spotted me. Nick Jonas never spotted me. Instead, you got stuck with Fred. He can't sing. (laughs) He can't sing. He's a little pudgy at this stage in his life. He's losing his hair, and he drives a minivan. And that's your reality. But what if... What if that scenario was reversed? What if the one on the stage was actually singing a deep, deep love song and it was to you? You were the undeniable object of their attention, their affection, of the song they were singing. And you ignored it. You rejected it. You dismissed it. 
This is a little bit what's going on in Exodus 34. Because literally when God says, I am a God who's abounding in love, rich, wealthy in love, full of, it is abundant in me, it is overflowing in me. When he's saying that, he's describing himself. And in describing himself, he is telling us, namely them, the Israelites, us, now secondarily, what he thinks of us in the process. That he is so full of love and faithfulness towards us, for us, But what's interesting in this passage is he is saying that about and to a group of people who just substituted a golden calf in the place of him. They decided to worship a golden calf instead of the God who's abounding in love and faithfulness for them. And it's as though he's saying, I want you to know how deep, how rich, how wide my love is because it is a natural expression of who I am. Uh, depending on what version you have, the NIV and New King James Version and New Living Translation and New American Standard, they're all over the place. Uh, Abounding, some say in steadfast, some just say in love and faithfulness. Abounding, King James, in goodness and truth, uh, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Abounding in faithfulness and truth. It's like, what in the world? Why are the English translations so all over the place with this? Well, the answer is a little bit simple that I think I want to tease out a little bit because what they're trying to do with the first word in particular, unfailing love, uh, abounding in goodness, uh, is to translate a Hebrew word. The word is hesed. <clears throat> now, if you want to say this like a really true Hebrew student, try it. I, you know, if you're in a coffee shop, do it. Everybody's going to look at you. But you got to kind of get it from your throat like hesed, like right? Sorry about that if you're eating, right? Uh, if you're not spitting on a person in front of you, you're not saying it right, right? But, but it's hesed. And that's kind of literally how it's written in Hebrew. And the reason the English translations are all over the place is this, that our English language is a bit limited and confined. It's a bit one-dimensional. Uh, such is the case, just think about this for a minute, just to flesh this out. Such is the case with the word love. Think about love. Uh, I love ice cream. Raise your hand if you're with me. Black raspberry, right? I love ice cream. Uh, I love football. Anybody with me on that? Some of you are like, no way. But anybody with me? I love football. Uh, I love singing certain songs. Anybody else do that? I love that. Uh, I love going on a hike. Anybody with me on that? Some of you guys are pet lovers. How many of you love your dog or your cat? Just raise your hand. And then if I, in the same breath, say, I love my wife... Now, let me ask you a question. Do you hope that she hears that and thinks he loves me the same as he loves black raspberry ice cream? I'm going to tell you, if, if that's the way I love her, I'm in some deep weeds, <laughs> right? I'm in deep weeds. Yeah, see, we have this word for love and we use it all kinds of ways. What the authors are trying to do is translate this complex, textured, nuanced word said. And they're trying to translate this word with just one English word, and it's next near to impossible. It's very important to understand this. If you want to understand the texture and the nuance of the character of God, it shows up over 260 times just in the Old Testament. It's actually repeated in this very same passage. Uh, He not only says slow anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, that's hased. It's so important he repeats it again. Uh, Vine's Bible Dictionary says this. It's just fa- like these are just tools that you can get on your own, by the way. 
but this word has said loving kindness is the idea I love this of faithful love in action uh, it is God's loving kindness expressed in his covenant relationship with Israel uh, has said expresses both God's loyalty to his covenant and his love for his people, his affection for his people, along with a faithfulness to keep his promises. Hesed, this word is very textured. It's very, it, to leave out some of the texture would be to miss the potency, the richness, the depth of what God is saying about himself. And to leave him one-dimensional, and he's more like a diamond, many, many dimensional. Uh, when I think of the word hesed, let's... This is something that, quite frankly, uh, one of our other campus pastors at Medina East, I think, came up with. But it, let, let's say it has three different components for today. The idea is this love that is the object of affection. This is a relational, kind of emotional part of this. To have strong emotions, to, to have feelings for somebody. Now, they're the object of, to care about them, to actually like them, to enjoy being with them to look forward, this, this endearing, relational, emotional component to hesed. But it wasn't just that. The idea of hesed and love in the Old Testament and New Testament, but this word is an Old Testament word written in Hebrew, has the idea of commitment. It's not just affection. I feel a certain way. I get, uh, my heart does this, or I feel affection, or I like being, but it's this idea of commitment. Or in the Old Testament, the terminology they would have used would have been a covenant. Like it's like legal, contractual. Uh, it's binding. Uh, it's, it's the result of a promise. Now, there's this fascinating story that you can check me on, but uh, you, you, pretty quickly after the story of God begins, uh, Genesis 3, sin begins to enter, and all of a sudden there's this erosion. When you get to Genesis 12, that erosion had taken off. You had the flood and like hundreds and hundreds of years of history and uh, kind of the results of sin and depravity. And God chooses a man. His name is Abraham. And he makes a covenant, a commitment, a promise to him. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless all people through you. You're like literally the stars. There's, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And that's in Genesis 12. When you get to Genesis 15, there's this like odd, a little bit weird um, story where God is interacting with Abraham and he wants to ratify this covenant, this, this promise that he made. And so they would have done it the way it would have been familiar in the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, Abraham would have got some animals, bull, goat, uh, some birds, and he would have cut them in half. I know, I know, weird, right? He would have cut them in half, and then he would have kind of made an aisle between the parts, so they would have been parallel, almost like there was a pathway of animals that were cut in half. And the tradition would have been that the two people making the covenant with the promise to each other would have met in the middle of those animals that would have been cut apart. And it was their way of saying, may I become like them if I don't keep my part of this covenant. But in Genesis 15, God, there's something interesting that happens because God causes Abraham to go into this deep sleep. And God's the one who passes between the parts. And it's though God is saying this, my love, my commitment uh, to you and to, to the people that I'm calling out is going to be that whether or not you keep your part, I'm going to keep mine. May I become like these animals if I don't. 
In fact, if you read the whole story of God, it wasn't just like God saying, may I become like these animals if I don't, but I will become like these animals even when you don't. That's the story of Jesus, right? Like it's fascinating that literally Jesus gave up his life because we didn't keep our part of the bargain. And so Hesed has this idea of deep affection, emotion, this commitment, this obligation, and then it has this idea of action. The idea here is of kindness in motion. The idea is a kindness that is demonstrated, a demonstration of love. And so what happens is when you put these together, where those things all come together, you get Hesed. Like if, if, if you just have two of them, you don't quite have Hesed. Like if, if you, uh, the best illustration of this is probably marriage. Uh, it's probably marriage. God uses that analogy over and over again that he has said his people. It's how he loves us. He has a deep affection. He is a promise-keeping God. And his love showed up in action. And, and, and marriage is a great illustration of this. In fact, in fact, he uses this uh, verbiage in Isaiah. He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. You see, that is him talking about being the husband, loving in a, in, in a way that a husband would love a wife. Now, here's the problem. Uh, marriage is the best illustration of this, but the problem is this, is that we live in a culture that has redefined marriage and watered down the vows, and it doesn't hold the same potency as it does in the eyes of God, even still today. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, one man, one woman, and it's for a lifetime. Now, I don't suggest that you cut animal parts uh, apart and walk down an aisle to do your ceremony. But it's, it's a covenant with, with that strength. It's this strong affection. I meet with couples all the time going to get married. And they come and they have this strong feeling, strong affection for each other. I just know the guy's like, I get butterflies every time she walks in the room. That's awesome. Now, they're, they're, they're young, right? So he gets butterflies. And so I got to talk to them about marriage is way more than just that, but it is a commitment. Uh, I'll say to young couples that the vows you exchange on your wedding day are not just a declaration of how you feel on that day, but it is a promise into the future. You're making a promise to each other into an unknown future. I promise that I'm not going to leave you. I promise I'll be with you. Rich, poor, uh, health, sickness, right? Whether things are good or bad. And then uh, what marriage is, is when you say yes, it is a lifetime of saying yes. It is love that shows up in action. And man, you see this played out in marriage. Uh, to, to only have two of these and not three is not quite has said. Now you can keep your promise and do it by acting on the behalf of somebody else without care, tenderness, and affection. And, and there's going to be something missing from the component, Right. I just was with somebody and they said they felt the, the people who were taking care of them were committed, they're going to keep their, and they're doing a lot. They just don't feel loved by them. That's interesting. Uh, this plays out in marriage. I'm working here at the campus with some beautiful people that have been married for some length of time and one of them has gotten sick. I'm thinking right now of a man who's taking care of his wife. And he virtually, uh, when they stood and said yes to each other, they both were young and vibrant and looking forward to life. But now uh, sickness has just ravaged her body and she can't do most things on her own. 
And his love for her is so robust that, that he cares about her. He calls her by a little pet name every time I talk to him. And his commitment to her shows up and then he does things for her that she never dreamed that he would have to do. And he shows up every day. He doesn't just sit on the couch and say, I hope the others will take care of it. You see, that's the kind of love that, that he's talking about here. It's hased. That if one is missing, then hased is not present. God is abounding in hased. But he's not just abounding in steadfast love, hased, but he's abounding in faithfulness. Faithfulness, that's interesting. Uh, that is a, another Hebrew word. Learn a lot of Hebrew today. Here it is. If you like somebody, it's kind of cool. But it's the word emet. I'm probably pronouncing it not quite right, but uh, find a Hebrew scholar and get them to pronounce it to you. But it is a textured word that means uh, consistent, faithful, reliable. Uh, it means steadfast. Uh, it is why the English translations are all over the place, right? They faithfulness, abounding in goodness and truth. Uh, down here, truth. Uh, it literally means steadfast. It's consistent. It means I can always count on God to act like God. Write that down somewhere. You can always count on God to act like God. Uh, the word emet sounds like what? Amen. When you ever been in church service, when, when people say amen, right? Or ever have a preacher, we do it occasionally say, can I get an amen, right? And it, when I say that, I'm just saying that's true. That is true. That's right on. It's like, it's like the old way of saying right on. That's true, right? I remember, I mean, you know, I preach here and occasionally I'll get an amen. Maybe I'm getting one out there now occasionally. And sometimes we'll beg for one. But I remember preaching in the inner city of Philadelphia. It was a whole different demographic. I mean, I, I don't know, there was anywhere from 70 to 100 uh, homeless men where I was preaching, and there was uh, all demographics, right? We had white, black, Hispanic, uh, Asian, Puerto Rican, all, all demographics. And I was just young 20-some-year-old preacher, and they asked me to preach to this group. And I said, I'd be happy to preach to that group. And so when I began preaching to that group, all of a sudden I realized something. They, they talked back as much as I was talking to them. <laughs> and I remember like, whoa. And I, mean, I was getting amen and all, everything I said was amen. And I thought, man, I almost had to fight to get a word in edgewise. I loved it, man. It kind of revved me up, right? But this word amet is where the word amen comes from. Uh, what's interesting is that the three letters of the Hebrew word, see if I can go back there, uh, fall in an interesting place in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, those three letters, Aleph, uh, and Mem, and Tav, are the first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter. And it was as though the Hebrew scholars, many of them say the placement of them show the, the breadth and the foundation of God's truthfulness, that God is true, that he will not falter. The fact of the matter is God says, I'm abounding in Hesed and Amet. Uh, one author puts it this way. When you put hesed and emet together, it's incendiary. He says this, abounding in love and faithfulness is what English people, maybe you're into English, call a hen diadis. Now try to say that three times fast. You guys, raise your hand if you even know what that is. I don't see many hands going up. I'm just telling you, right? I wouldn't have known had somebody not pointed out to me. But a 
Hen, diadis, is a literary device where two words are smashed together to help define each other. He goes on to say this, when God does this, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's saying this, God's love is his faithfulness and God's faithfulness is his love. They go together. That's why the translation, he says, love is very deficient. When we read love, most of us think these feelings, these butterfly feelings, or may we think tolerance. So we read love and we think Yahweh is just saying he really likes us, feels warm to us. In English, abounding in love sounds like a synonym for compassionate. So it feels repetitive to what Pastor Aiden taught us. But in Hebrew, it's not. God isn't saying something. He's saying something else here. When he says hased and amet and he puts them together, he's talking about God's loyal love. It's a stubborn, resilient love. He never, ever abandons his people, but he's faithful to the bitter end, no matter what the cost. God is abounding in hased and amet. God is full of, rich with, wealthy with, love, steadfast love. It's loyal. It's true. It's faithful. Over and over and over again, God would communicate that kind of love in the illustration or the picture of a marriage. He loved them with hased, an affection. He loved them with a faithfulness to keep his promise. He loved them with a kindness that was in motion. Nowhere do I think is that more emphatically, maybe profoundly, maybe almost scandalously than in the life of one of the particular Old Testament prophets. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but the Old Testament, if you're like, I don't know, it's this first part of your Bible that we're in. Exodus is in the Old Testament, and it goes, uh, there's 39 books in that, and it's the first part. It's the part people read less, but it's, it's rich, it's God's word. And prophets in the Old Testament were just simply transmitters of the message of God to the people of God. So you have a whole bunch of prophets. Uh, you'll hear some people call them major prophets and minor prophets. That's not because one's message is more important. It's just there's some smaller books and there's some bigger books. And these prophets transmitted the message of God. Sometimes they just declared the word that God gave them to declare to the people. But sometimes they were asked to actually play a part that demonstrated the message of God. Their life became the living illustration of what God wanted his people to know. Such was the case with one Old Testament prophet whose name was Hosea. You ever heard of him? Raise your hand. You ever heard of him? <laughs> you ever read his book? Like my guess is not many of you did your devotions in Hosea this morning. You ought to go read it though. It's a powerful book. I do think though of all the prophets, I may least wanted to have been him. Because God wants Hosea to deliver a message to his people. But he wants to, him to do it by playing a part in a drama that illustrates God's hased and his amet, his love and his faithfulness for his people. And because God's relationship with his people is like a marriage, a marriage that sometimes goes bad, never due to God's shortcomings. God wants to show the extent to which he goes to heal and restore what is broken in that marriage between him and his people, even though he is not the one who is responsible for whatever is broken. Hosea is going to play that part. He wants him to illustrate this kind of love. He was a prophet to the northern ten tribes of Israel. 
Uh, sometimes in the book, they're referred to as Ephraim, the biggest uh, tribe, but it's still talking about the 10 tribes of Israel. And I believe Hosea must go down in history as the man who received the worst ministry assignment ever. Like, here's what it says. Just kind of follow on the screen with me. We'll try to make sense of this. God says, when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. Like, that's what I'm doing right away. How about you? So that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This, why? Why in the world? Because this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. I want you to go, can you imagine this? I want you to go marry this gal. Um, you're eagerly excited as a prophet of God to, to serve God and receive your assignment. He's like, okay, here's your assignment, right? Here's your assignment. I want you to go and marry this gal out of promiscuity. And I want your life to be a living illustration of how Israel is treating me. Because Israel is committing adultery on God. And I want your marriage to illustrate how I respond. If, as if that's not bad enough, keep reading with me. So Hosea married, come on, everybody out there join me, say her, her name. Gomer. As bad enough, got to marry a gal's prostitute, and then her name's Gomer? Can you imagine? Showing up to the dinner party? Hey, Hosea, let me meet your wife. What's her name? Gomer. Like, I know, I know one Gomer, and it was on a TV show, and he used to say, golly, right? I mean, yeah, I'd be kidding me. The daughter of that dude's name. No wonder they weren't real good at names, right? And uh, she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. Uh, her name really is Gomer. And Gomer rescues her out of her promiscuity. He loves her. They start a family together. They have three kids. And those three kids, as you read the story, become players in this drama. God gives them names that illustrate what's going to happen to Israel because of their adultery. He's going to give them over to the natural consequences of their choice. One of those kids' name is Jezreel, and the Assyrian Empire is going to scatter the Israelites all over the place. The next one is named Lo-Rahoma, which means no. Lo in Hebrew is no, no mercy. That they literally are going to make decisions where they find themselves out from underneath the merciful hand of God that keeps back the consequences of their sin. The next one's name is Lo-Ami, which means not my people. They had so turned their back, they had kind of disassociated. And this gets illustrated in the life of Hosea. He marries Gomer, and she eventually returns to her ways. You read chapter 2 in rather graphic fashion. It talks about how Gomer goes back to her old ways. She turns her back on Hosea and her kids, and she sells herself for sex. She commits adultery. And it's an illustration of what Israel is doing to God. Adultery in the Bible is this imagery of sin, betraying the love of God, the relationship of God for another. And Hosea rescued her out of a life of promiscuity, gave her security, gave her the opportunity and stability, and eventually she's going to leave him for another, and she steps out on him. You see, adultery, it's just an illustration. Adultery was this picture of what Israel would constantly do in God. They'd step out on their relationship with God. 
Instead of trusting God and following God, they looked for alternative routes. They would look to other people. They would serve other gods. They committed adultery on God. And the Bible says that you and I do the same, don't we? When you and I let other things take the place of God, the place God's supposed to occupy in our hearts, the Bible calls that spiritual adultery. That happens when we make good things the ultimate thing in place of God. That's spiritual adultery. Now that happens when we make God a tag on. I want to make God part of my life. Imagine me saying that to my wife. I, I want you to play a part of my life, but I don't want you, you know, I'll let you know what parts. I'll call you when I need you. Imagine that. What kind of marriage would that be? That's spiritual adultery. That God wants to be part of all of my life. Uh, I, I, it happens when I know what God says, but I want to do it my way because I want to fit into the culture. That's spiritual adultery. Occasionally, I'll have peop, uh, people come to my office and uh, they're having a sexual relationship outside of marriage. And they, they claim to be followers of Jesus. And I'll occasionally just say, hey, help me understand what part does Jesus play in your relationship? And they'll say something like this, I know this isn't what God wants us to do, but it's convenient. It's financially feasible. I don't, I've had people say this to me, uh, everyone else is doing it. It's just kind of the way things roll now. And the bottom line is, it's stepping out on God. And the primary sin there is not simply sexual immorality. That certainly is there. But the primary sin is I don't trust God. Like I'll call you when I need you, God, but I'm not gonna trust you. It happens all over the place. And the Bible calls this spiritual adultery. Gomer abandons her husband and her kids. And eventually she leaves him for a man who pays her for sex. To make matters worse, this new guy begins to abuse her. You read the story. Hosea pleads with her to come back, and but crazy enough, insanely, she doesn't and she won't. If I'm reading chapter 2 right, Hosea even gives the man she's living with money to take care of her. He loves her. Eventually, this new lover gets so tired of Gomer that he tries to sell her back into the sex trade. Hosea becomes an illustration of God's hased and amet. His stubborn, resilient, gonna show up love for us. God makes it very clear that even though his people had turned on him, abandoned him, and were paying the consequences of that, his stubborn, resilient hased had not gone out. In chapter 2, he says, I will, he's talking about Israel, make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. Does that sound familiar? I'll be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. Which leads to what one pastor in the uh, last century said is the most powerful chapter in all the Bible, chapter 3, Hosea. Because God says, I want you and your marriage, Hosea, to Gomer. She's literally disgraced. She's literally being abused. She literally has is, is, is abandoned her marriage. I want you, chapter 3, to go and love your wife again even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord, what? Still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. I mean, Hosea had to be saying, what? 
God is saying, love her by pursuing her. Go find her. Can you imagine what that journey would have felt like? Can you imagine where he would have had to go? He shows up at the auction. Scholars say this. I have it written in my Bible here. Scholars say Gomer would have been stripped naked so that potential buyers could see what they were bidding on. And here in the midst of a crowd of men who only want to take advantage of her body stands her husband, Hosea, who just wants to love and protect her. And this next part is just crazy. So I bought her, his wife, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. Can you imagine the scene? Even though you've been unfaithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to you. Even though you haven't loved me, I'm going to love you. Hosea pursued her. He paid for her and he reiterated his promise to her which God is clear is a picture for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice. Like literally the Assyrians are going to take over, then eventually the Babylonians. And, and, and there's going to be this chaos. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. He's saying this, Hosea, you are an illustration of the hesed and emet of God to a faithless people who constantly step out on their God, the God who rescued them, the God who deliberately, intentionally said yes to them. And here's what God is saying. He's saying eventually, someday in this passage, his hesed and his emet will show up in a person. And that person, when he showed up, was announced by a guy named John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, say that out loud with me, the Word was God. God showed up in a person. The abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, God became flesh, made his dwelling among us. This is Jesus. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Words that would have in the Greek and Aramaic been very compatible with hesed and emet. What I find interesting is that Hosea becomes this picture of what God is going to do. Hosea means, his name means salvation, and I'm interested it comes from the same root as the names Joshua and Jesus. Jesus is the true Hosea. He is the genuine groom he is the embodiment of God's hesed and a met for you and I. Here's what you need to know. Jesus is God pursuing you. You are the object of his affection. The love song of his word was written for you. You are the object of his kindness and the demonstration of his love. Jesus is God paying for you. At the cross, he showed up to the auction where you found yourself a slave to sin. And the word redemption literally means he paid the price to buy you back from the shame-filled gallery of your sin. He is the new covenant. There's no animals cut in two, but Jesus stripped naked, hung there between two thieves and paid the price. Jesus is God's promise being fulfilled to and for you. The writer in 2 Corinthians says this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are, what, yes, in Christ. And so through him, the amen 
Sound familiar? Is spoken by us to the glory of God. Jesus is the true Hosea. Can I just say this? We are Gomer. We are Gomer. We've stepped out on him, and he is abounding in love and faithfulness. And his invitation is to rescue us, to redeem us from the shame-filled gallery of our sin. Have you ever said yes to Jesus? He loves you. Have you ever said yes to God's kindness and his love expressed in Christ for you at the cross? He said yes to you. He is abounding in it. He is rich in it. Some of you have said yes to Jesus, and yet if you're honest, you're committing spiritual adultery on God. We do it all the time, don't we? We make him a part of our life. We decide that what he has to say works for us sometimes, but not other times. Jesus had a half-brother whose name was James, and he said this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship of the world means enmity against God? Sometimes we want to make God fit the culture. He doesn't always fit in there. Therefore, if anyone chooses to be a friend of the world, they become an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That at the end of the day, my spiritual adultery is the result of my pride. I feel like I know better than God. So what do I do? He says, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves to the one who has said and met for you. Resist the devil. He's the one who wants to land you in the shame-filled gallery of your sin. And he'll flee from you. Then listen to this beautiful, intimate, come near to God, and he will come near to you. I love that. You see, I am abounding in hesed and emet. Jesus is the true Hosea, right? We are Gomer. In his invitation, he's standing in the gallery. He paid the price. You are the object of his affection. You are the object of his promise found in Christ, fulfilled in Christ. And ultimately, when you say yes to him, here's God's desire and his intention. He wants gomers that turn into Hosea's. The minute I experience the hesed and the met, the steadfast love that comes from Jesus, it transforms me to be someone who extends that to other people. And my life, just like Hosea's, becomes an illustration of the beautiful covenant love of God towards me. What a beautiful picture of who God is. God, I pray for those that are watching, God, that you would allow this to stir around. Some of us weren't sure that you loved us, and this passage just so emphatically reinforces that. You do love us. That you're faithful, that you're loving. God, some of us are still in that shame-filled gallery, and we've never ever said yes to Jesus, the one pursuing us, the one who paid for us, the one who fulfills all the promises of God for us. And if that's you watching, you can write there, watching. Thanks for staying to the end. You can pray. Say, God, I know you love me, and I believe Jesus died for me and paid the price for my redemption. And today I want to say yes to Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord. Man, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear from you. There's others of you as we're praying together. Now, you've said yes to Jesus, but if you're honest, you've walked away. 
You're committing spiritual adultery. You're doing it your way. You're saying, I don't trust you. I don't have confidence in your love for me. And you've stepped out on your relationship with God. You see Jesus in the gallery? He's still got his eye on you. He's still committed to you. He's still the... He's still the demonstration of kindness in motion for you. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. He's reaching out for you today. And here's how you know you begin to accept that, God. I pray that in those of us who are followers of Christ, that our lives would become a walking, living, breathing illustration of the hesed and amet that you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.